The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Management in a crisis should be the same as the management in peacetime. And that's very clear in, in the Swedish law, and we, we kept on doing that. Four. I do feel, I'm afraid, and I think it's unanswerably true now, that lockdown killed more people than it saved. Three. We learned quite soon that it's quite easy to start have different kind of restrictions, but it's very difficult to stop having them. Two. We were accused of misinformation, <laughs> by the misinformation specialists. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. On the 23rd of March 2020, exactly three years ago, then Prime Minister Boris Johnson told the British people to stay at home. Two days later, the Coronavirus Act was passed by Parliament, giving the government unprecedented powers of control. At first, it was a novelty, some time off, as the nation basked in the unusually warm spring sunshine. But pretty soon it was clear that three weeks to squash the sombrero was, to coin a phrase, old hat. (laughs) Johnson himself succumbed to Covid, admitted to hospital in early April 2020, News the Prime Minister was in intensive care, his life in genuine danger, shocked the nation while weakening Johnson's resolve. And so Britain became obsessed with social distancing, substantial meals and R numbers. Schools and universities closed as the NHS cancelled millions of non-Covid appointments. Ministers doubling down on across-the-board restrictions. The economy collapsed as countless billions were spent paying millions not to work, financed by debt and printed money. But even to talk about the collateral damage of lockdown was to be accused of being heartless, conspiratorial, a granny killer. Launching in May 2020, we never dreamed that Planet Normal would be so dominated by lockdown issues, did we, Alison? Our aim was to speak to those like us, who felt our metropolitan media, particularly the broadcasters, had become more generally out of touch. But as lockdown dragged on and we gave voice to brave medics, educationalists, epidemiologists, willing to question government policy, Planet Normal became, to quote the great Shinetra Gupta, orthogonal to the orthodoxy. (laughs) Three years on, Alison, we're devoting this week and next week's Planet Normal to marking this important lockdown anniversary. And as we do, that orthodoxy that we questioned, ahead of the public inquiry, is most definitely in flux. Very nice summing up, co-pilot, of a truly dreadful period. Yeah, three years on, dust has settled, hasn't it? And we are starting to see some things very clearly. I absolutely agree with you that I think people thought of us as a covid podcast but that was never the aim was it we just got sucked into the there is a tide in human affairs and we rode that tide and I was thinking about what I wanted to say to you today apart from thanking you for being my brilliant co-pilot never have done it without you what do you mean by that what's she after (laughs) eh (laughs) there's the odd moment where we should pay generous tribute unlike you Liam I had never done well i probably never done journalism, really. I mean, I certainly never done investigative journalism. I was the la-di-da, colour features end of things and and opinioning. And something changed in me. I think suddenly I saw, after very early on, being quite trusting of the government response and thinking, let's go along with this, and I'm sure they mean for the best and so on. And then just the penny dropping really that suddenly we were being bombarded with what seemed to me to be outright propaganda. We knew, didn't we, from the Planet Normal inbox of the mounting horrible consequences of these measures. I personally received more than 7,000 emails from Telegraph readers talking to me about everything from elderly people being unable to access GPs to parents worried sick about children with mounting mental health issues. And as you say, those of us who queried any of this, the hospital occupancy data, or how dangerous was COVID actually to the majority of the healthy population, we were accused of misinformation (laughs) by the misinformation specialists. And you know me, co-pilot, I'm an RC product of the South Wales 
coal mining area, really. I don't like unfairness. I don't like authority that misuses its power. And I simply couldn't believe what was happening to our country. I was really shocked to the core. And I believed that we had to do something. And we did it, didn't we? I don't know. How do we feel now? I mean, we've talked about feeling a bit vindicated. And that's particularly in the last few weeks, we're seeing people in our trade, journalism. Piers Morgan said the other day, perhaps he should have asked a few more questions. But I don't know. I've said to you, I feel very changed by what happened. And I don't trust authority. And I feel very keenly the damage that's been done to so many of the great people who've been in touch with us. But I'm whiffling on. You tell me what you think. Well, I think you've summed it up well. We did take a lot of abuse and a lot of brickbats from people within our own trade and our own lives for questioning lockdown. We never for a second questioned that COVID could kill. We never for a second questioned that people should take their vaccines. We encouraged the development of the vaccine programme, both on the podcast and in our dealings with the government and other officials, didn't we? And yet we were very focused on the collateral damage because we felt there wasn't a proper debate going on. There wasn't what economists call a cost-benefit analysis, a phrase that you'd never heard of before lockdown. (laughs) You're you're schooling me in the various intricacies of econometrics. There were many phrases I'd never heard of. Statistical (laughs) analysis. I think you have changed. I think you've become very, very analytical. I think you've learned a great deal about eyeballing data and being confident around data. And I think I've changed. I think I've become a bit more steely when it comes to arguing my corner and describing the the truth that I see in front of me. And we constantly called out graphs where the Mm. axes had been manipulated to make them look scary. We constantly called out a lot of other journalists when they were asking ridiculous questions at those horrible Mm. briefings where you just had mindless political correspondence. Sorry, but you were mindless. You just wanted to get your question on the telly rather than good health correspondence, economic correspondence, who would put other facts forward countering this notion that lockdown is always and everywhere the answer. I think the great achievement of Planet Normal, and I take my hat off to you, to the team that we are, to our production staff and to the Telegraph more broadly, is that we gave a platform, and it was difficult at times, we gave a platform to people who at the time were being treated as heretics. Mm. The amazing epidemiologists, world-class epidemiologists behind the great Barrington Declaration, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kaldorf, Shinetra Gupta. We've got to know all three of them well. Mm. They've appeared on our podcast. Medics who were speaking out often anonymously from within the NHS describing what was going on. Brave teachers and other educationalists talking months and months and months before issues like this were publicly acknowledged about the huge damage that was being done to kids. Campaigners like us for them, Mm. putting forward always the case for children in lockdown, a case for children that we still am not sure may not even be examined in this upcoming long delayed public inquiry. I don't feel particularly vindicated. I don't feel satisfied. The way human nature works and certainly the way journalism works is no one's going to throw roses in our path for being correct. We'll just be labelled as even arsier than we were before. (laughs) You don't get much credit for sticking your neck above the parapet and being right, at least not from within journalism. You don't win awards. You don't get your superiors saying that you did a great job. But I think out there, an awful lot of listeners to Planet Normal and the public in general know that there were a few journalists among us, a handful that were brave enough to call things out, to examine the data, to interrogate the information that was put forward and to cry foul when we saw foul. And there's some kind of grim satisfaction in that. But there's also a real sadness in my heart because I do feel this was a ridiculous policy. I do feel, I'm afraid, and I think it's unanswerably true now that lockdown killed more people than it saved. I don't have any doubt that the worst policy mistake in our lifetime and probably in modern British history. And we see the evidence rolling in for that. I feel sad. I have a sort of you know, a vein of sadness running through. But I do feel that 
we became a band of brothers and sisters. And, and Planet Normal listeners often thank us, Liam, don't they? They say, you kept us sane. Well, Planet Normal listeners, you kept us sane. Hey, hey. And you kept us determined to go on, even when things were pretty dire. The fact there were so many intelligent, curious people who cared about democracy, who wanted to debate about what was actually happening to us, to our families and to wider society. And I do feel it has had an immensely sort of solidifying effect. I, I know that when we've done live events for Planet Normal, there's such a camaraderie in the room. I have made lots of friends. I probably made some enemies, actually, but I feel like I've made good friends because in times like this, you realise who the people are who are prepared to stand up. And we shouldn't forget, Liam, should we? George, our astonishing source within NHS England. I can remember sitting there watching those dreadful Downing Street press briefings every night with the amazing truncated graphs. As you say, Halligan, Alison Pearson had never been knowingly wanted to look at a graph in her life, but suddenly I'd become attuned to seeing what had been done to make graphs look more frightening. And I was texting George and saying, this is what's happening with hospital occupancy. And George, bless their hearts, would be straight back with, actually, that's not what's happening. And we got to know about nosocomial infections, didn't we? We got to know that when they said 6,000 people were admitted to hospital with COVID yesterday, we knew that they weren't admitted to hospital with COVID. Many of them were going in and having a just a positive test. And many of those were having a positive test within days of being in hospital for some other condition and were given COVID by the hospital. And that's a very growing thing. I should just say, Liam, that I'm slightly more dubious. Yes, we were. Obviously, we did support the vaccines and the vaccine programme. I felt it did give a huge amount of reassurance, particularly to our parents' generation. I think looking back, we will be asking should we ever have been vaccinating the younger, healthy population? We raised questions, didn't we, about there being any merit in vaccinating children. And I think that one of the key things about COVID, we know now it is one of the most age-stratified viruses in terms of its lethality. So basically, it falls off the young, really. And I think that that's something that people will look back on in history and see that the approach to it, Kate Bingham, the vaccines are said very early on, there was never any plan to vaccinate the whole population. And I hope that the COVID inquiry will look into that. The virus doesn't discriminate, we were told endlessly yeah, through the telly and on the radio. What utter nonsense. It was clear from the first weeks that it discriminated. It was clear to anybody with the remotest acquaintance with the data that the average age of deaths from with covid was higher than the average age of death anyway yes. <laughs> which tells you everything that you need to know if you think about it for just one millisecond and i think we have to mention here also how the intellectual climate the political climate around lockdown and this discussion just in time for the public inquiry has been absolutely transformed by Isabel Oakjot's lockdown yes, files, absolutely. by the excellent job mm. we should be proud that The Telegraph has done in presenting that information in an even-handed, non-alarmist, journalistically responsible way. I do think the revelation of those WhatsApp messages, they're not the complete story. We have to be careful about other calls that happened, other memos that might have been written. Government isn't completely by lockdown. But it does give an astonishing insight to how we were being governed. And it does, as we say in the journalistic trade, stand up a lot of the assertions that we were making yes. about how we were being governed cynically. It stands up former cabinet minister David Frost's use of the phrase COVID theatre when it comes to masks and lockdowns and substantial meals and all the rest of it. And I think because of those lockdown files, because Isabel made them available to the public, because The Telegraph, a very authoritative news organisation, has presented them in an authoritative way, I do think the public inquiry will be utterly transformed. I hope so. And I think 
unbelievably, they still don't have a deadline, Liam. This is outrageous. They've already spent tens of millions of pounds sort of recruiting various top barristers and so on. Even took 18 months to establish the terms of reference. It's absolute nonsense. If this turns out to be an establishment exercise in kicking lockdown and all the horrible damage it's done into the long grass, then Copilot's going to go and chain herself somewhere. Just quickly, I think it's very important. Two things that stand out for me. Project Fear, Professor Neil Ferguson, use of mathematical models, the most pessimistic worst case scenarios. If you look back in the winter of 2020, we were being warned of 6,000 daily COVID deaths, 10,000 hospitalizations, huge numbers being flung around like malign confetti, absolutely disgusting misuse of data. And the other thing, of course, linked is Project Fear. And I look back, Liam, went back and looked, and the behavioural scientist, Simon Ruder, who was a co-founder of the Number 10 Nudge Unit, and he said that the overemphasis on modelling and data was propagandistic. Fear, Simon Ruder said, this is the guy who was involved, was initially used to boost public compliance during the first lockdown, but was carried on throughout the crisis. And this is what Simon Ruder said, and this should chill every British person. In my mind, the most egregious and far-reaching mistake made in responding to the pandemic has been the level of fear willingly conveyed on the public. Public were treated like untrustworthy, naughty children, not adults. And we know, Liam, look at the data now about how many hundreds of thousands of people have decided not to go back to work. So not only do we have traumatized teenagers, teenagers with anorexia, with tics, with Tourette's, all as Matt Hancock said in one of his charming WhatsApps, let's frighten the pants off them. Tens of thousands of cancer cases that haven't been treated because screening was put on hold. All those NHS operations that were cancelled because they weren't related to COVID. All those kids, the so-called ghost children, Mm. tens of thousands of them that haven't gone back to school. What's happened to them? This is really, really serious, Alison. And while we take no satisfaction in being vindicated, we are determined, aren't we, that this public inquiry properly lifts the bonnet on everything that happened so we can learn the lessons for future pandemics, but also for government in all shapes and forms, the whole idea of how leadership works in this country. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, Mine! As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! What we're doing this week and next week is this lockdown special. Next week, we're going to present a series of interviews, aren't we? Our heroes of lockdown, Mm. people who we know, people who we've had on Planet Normal in the past, talking about their views of lockdown during this three-year retrospective. But what we're doing today is running an extended interview with a particular person of importance, Alison. Tell us about it. A special Lockdown Heroes edition of Planet Normal demands a specially heroic guest on the rocket. So I travel to snowy Lynn shopping to meet Anders Tegnell, who was Sweden's state epidemiologist during the pandemic. Tegnell and his team at the Public Health Agency in Stockholm were the only ones to stick to their pandemic plan, pursuing a mitigation strategy against COVID-19 while leaders of every other country in the Western world went into a blind panic and imposed Chinese Communist Party-style lockdowns, Tegnell, a notably cool, calm and collected customer, his mantra is the same as Bjorn Borg's when he used to go onto the tennis court, ice in the stomach. Tegnell refused to believe that the evidence about a not especially lethal virus justified such draconian measures 
apart from a ban on gatherings over 500 people, a few rules for restaurants and general encouragement to work from home, all of Sweden's COVID measures were entirely voluntary. In short, Tegnell trusted people to act like grown-ups. He was also mindful of the huge collateral damage that shutting down society would cause. Anders Tegnell's red line was schools. He point-blank refused to close schools for the under-16s, fearing the impact that would have on vulnerable young people. The Swedish experiment, as it became known, caused huge hostility internationally. The New York Times called Sweden a pariah state, pointing with glee to its high early death toll. Tegnell himself was accused of practising eugenics, of not caring how many people died. Although he commanded huge support among the Swedish people, becoming a folk hero whose face was seen on T-shirts and even tattoos, Anders also faced death threats and went everywhere for a while with two armed bodyguards. On this, the third anniversary of the British lockdown, the success of Sweden's brave, lonely course becomes ever more apparent. No debt of 400 billion quid, no epidemic of mental health problems among Swedish children, no hospital waiting lists, no thousands of missed cancers and heart problems. Anders Tegnell's extraordinary and historic stand made his country into a control group that other nations didn't want. They said they had no choice but to lock down. Sweden proved there was a choice, a better way. As all the countries around Sweden scrambled into lockdown, Johan Gusecki, a retired eminent epidemiologist and Tegnell's mentor, sent his protégé a one-sentence email in Latin. I'm going to try and say this for you, co-pilot. Anescis mi fili quantilla prudential mundus regata. This is how it translates. Don't you know, my son, with how little wisdom the world is governed? Anders Tegnell restored a little wisdom to our mad world. He was a hero for so many of us who were alarmed and disgusted by the unevidenced regulations and fear tactics of our own governments. Gosh, I felt so privileged to meet him co-pilot, sitting there in Sweden in that little recording studio, all the snow billowing outside. I couldn't stop smiling. I was so happy to meet this remarkable man. So I began by reading Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, to a man who had truly kept his head while all about were losing theirs. Anders Tegnell, a very warm welcome to Planet Normal. Since the spring of 2020, we have been lockdown sceptics on Planet Normal and you, Anders and Sweden, have been a beacon of rationality and hope to so many of us during some very strange, dark days in the UK. I'd like to begin with a Kipling poem. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. Now, famously, you did keep your head when all about were losing theirs in March 2020. And I'd like to ask, what gave you the confidence to hold your course and stick with voluntary measures in Sweden when public health experts in every other Western country were tearing up their pandemic plans? I think there was a number of factors involved in that. One of the factors is that it was, of course, not me as a person. It was the public health agency of Sweden yes. uh, that we could do this together and that we were quite, all of us, content with, with following this course. And, and the background to that is partly because public health in Sweden usually work with voluntary measures and we have very good experience with that. Mm. We usually quote our very voluntary childhood vaccination program, which is 98% of all children without any forcing measures at all. I think the other part of it is that we really felt and we knew that we had the public behind us. A number of polls showed that the confidence in the public health agency of Sweden was very, very high throughout the pandemic and still is very high. Mm. And I think that all gave us the confidence to, to continue and that the development were not really against us, I must say. I mean, the waves tend to come and go in Sweden very similar to the did in many other countries. Mm. But you presumably were mindful of the damage of these very strong restrictions, which what you saw elsewhere. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, our agency has the very broad responsibility in all areas of public health. And uh, the Swedish law and, and rules we have very much emphasizes proportionality, that you are not really allowed to take measures that can hurt more than they will gain. So that was very much in the back of our head. And we knew that, okay, I mean, closing schools is our favorite example, because that's so very clear. Uh, we all know that children are not allowed to and cannot attend to school. They fare much worse in the future, both health-wise, but also economy and, and many other aspects. I've been reading up and there was some internal opposition. There was uh, quite a lot of people in the press in Sweden who didn't think that you were doing enough fast enough. Were you aware of that opposition? How How did you steel yourself against that? Yeah, of course. I mean, there is always, and I, I think that's good, and, and that's what democracy is all about, that we should have an open discussion. And of course, there are pros and cons to anything you do. So these um, different uh, other voices were all very much heard, uh, not least in the media. And the media also put those kind of questions to us constantly. So uh, yes, for sure. But we also knew, as I said, we knew that a great majority was behind what we were doing, including the scientific community. There's a difference in Sweden in that your team, the public health agency, were not interfered with with the politicians. Is that right? Was there a definite separation? Did they lean on you or did you did they let you get on with the job? No, I mean, there is a very clear division of labours between the, the agencies and the government. And that's established in law and it's established in mm. 400 years of tradition. And we, according to me, we, we kept that division of labors very clearly, which did not mean that we didn't talk to each other. I mean, my boss, our director, Johan Karlsson, he talked to the politicians every day, mm. kept them informed about what we were trying to do and how we did it. And when we needed political decisions, we went to the government and discussed with them and we, and we got the political decisions we needed to have in place. So this was like we always should do in, in Sweden when we talk about crisis management. Management in a crisis should be the same as the management in peacetime. And that's very clear in, in the Swedish law and we, we kept on doing that. I heard you using the phrase ice in the stomach, which I think was Bjorn Borg's mantra when he went out onto the court. Did you feel it helped to be very cool? Are you quite a cool person, do you think, not buffeted about by political pressure? Yeah, any kind of pressure. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I've been working in this field for decades. So yeah. I feel very confident in um, what we were doing. And once again, I had a huge amount of colleagues around me and, and colleagues in academia all over the place, including the, the Swedish population, who sort of all said a good job. I know you've worked with many viruses, but you'd worked with Ebola. Was there some part of you which thought this virus doesn't look that deadly? It's not going to harm probably the younger population. Was that part of the thinking? Because in the UK, we had adverts saying all age groups are equally at risk. Now, that was never true, was it? No, and we were very clear about that, that the elderly are really the part of our population that we need to protect in different ways, and they need to protect themselves. And we also knew from the data we got both from China and Italy very early on that young children were extremely rare that they got really seriously ill from this. So I think this is one of the diseases I have worked with that makes the biggest difference between the young and the, and the elderly. It, uh, being an old person was very, very much more dangerous than being a young person, especially during the first part. I mean, now when we have Omicron, it doesn't really hurt anybody very much anymore, no. so it's no. changed in that way. Yes. The president of Belarus claimed that the IMF offered him a bribe to impose a COVID lockdown. I don't think that's been verified but did you start to feel that there was international pressure on Sweden to fall into line as each country uh, adopted the same measures? Um, not that reached us. No one tried to bribe you. <laughs> no, 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 no. And uh, no, I mean, our politicians were also quite cool with this. I mean, as always, there was a huge amount of meetings between the EU ministers in different fora. And mm. um, I think it went a bit up and down. Sometimes people were really wondering, what are you doing? But uh, quite often, I was also quite curious about how do you manage to keep it the way you do without strict lockdowns and so on. 
Sweden was painted. I mean, there was very sensational language. You personally were accused of playing Russian roulette with the population. The New York Times even called Sweden a pariah state. But isn't it the truth that it was the other countries that were embarking on a vast experiment by shutting down their societies? That had never been in pandemic planning, had it? No, not for a long time. I mean, if you go back to the Spanish flu, you can find instances when when they try to lock things down. But since then, it's never really been used. No. And in the pandemic plans we have been discussing during the last decades, uh, closing down society has never been on the agenda. And is that because it was acknowledged that closing down society would do more harm than good? I don't know, really, because they were not really discussed. I mean, closing schools, yes, but Also there we discussed quite a lot because that was discussed during the previous swine flu pandemic quite a lot. And in a few places, schools were closed down and we had big meetings in France and other places discussing the pros and cons. And and that's not very easy to to figure out because the evidence behind both pros and cons are, are sketchy. And it very much depends on your context and so on. But for closing everything down, no, I've never been in those discussions ever, I must say. And why then do you think the World Health Organization pandemic plan and other pandemic plans, the one we had in the UK, they never mentioned these draconian measures? What was it? Was it pure panic, do you think? I mean, we we never know, but, but I think it had a lot to do with what happened in China which is, of course, a state, a country where things like this can be done and is done. Mm. And it seemed to work, and and it did work to a certain extent, of course. And I think that really then made the agenda for many other places too. See what they do in China, it works, let's do the same. I think it's as simple as that. It is the case, isn't it, that if you lock down, well, too soon, or if you lock down at all, that you postpone the problem, you don't solve it. Is that the case? Yeah, and there can be points in doing that, of course. I mean, if you know that your healthcare system needs a few weeks to ramp up their ICUs, and if you know that it's going to be a vaccine within a few months Mm -hmm. and so on, there are instances, of course, when, when things can be a solution maybe. But normally, yes, as you said, all pandemics we have had have always sort of swept through the population fast or slow. Yes. I remember I tweeted in 2020 that I was glad that my 20-year-old son and his student friends in a house had got COVID and they would have some immunity which would help protect their grandparents. That tweet, Anders, was labelled as misinformation. Mm. I was accused by thousands of people on Twitter of being a bad mother who wanted people to die. Why do you think the time-honoured principle of herd immunity suddenly became a dirty word? Because it was to a large extent misunderstood that we voluntarily, on purpose, wanted people to get sick as quickly as possible, which was never the case. We really wanted to have the spread as slow as we possibly could do with Mm. reasonable measures. Mm. And herd immunity, I mean, it's never a goal. Herd immunity is something that happens. Mm. It's an epidemiological fact. Nothing more, nothing less. And then herd immunity with this disease proved to be quite tricky because many people did not get fully immune. You got immune to being extremely sick. But you did not get completely immune to having the disease again and then maybe spreading it a bit. So herd immunity is not really plus or minus either. It's a complicated thing that we did not really understood very much about this disease in the beginning. And I still think we don't completely understood how herd immunity works with COVID-19. But you were people who talked about herd immunity were accused of callousness, Mm of being happy for people to die, that's a misunderstanding. Yeah, completely. I mean, we did definitely try to protect the groups of the population that were at a high risk of falling that ill and maybe dying. That was one of the main purposes of the strategy in Sweden, was really to protect the vulnerable groups. 
We had a very bad situation in our care homes because of uh, a lack of testing. We've just had a, a leak of WhatsApp messages with the then health minister saying he was going to protect the care homes. But they were testing people coming from the hospitals into the old people's homes, but they weren't testing visitors coming in. And we did lose thousands of elderly relatives very, very sadly. You had a similar experience in Sweden. We had a very mild flu year in 2019. You could say there were a lot of elderly people who would have died in the winter of 2019 who were then taken by COVID in the spring of 2020. Was that a factor in Sweden? And how do you look back now on what you did and didn't do with the care homes with any regret or with doubt? Yeah, that was also a factor in Sweden, the, the flu epidemic the year before in Sweden was also very mild, which meant that there was quite a big group of very vulnerable, very fragile people around. And, and that, of course, had some effect on this. Uh, when we now look back at the excess mortality, which we often use for when we want to see how bad something has been, especially the yearly flu epidemics, the total excess mortality in Sweden has turned out to be very low. It was high in the beginning, but since then it's been very low all the time. And now we're among the lowest in Europe. The elderly homes in Sweden has been a problematic thing for decades. The responsibility to take care of the elderly in Sweden moved from the regions to the communities uh, some 30, 40 years ago in a, in a famous reform. And the elderly homes that were established then were in many ways very good. They were very homelike, and, and, but they didn't really have an, enough medical expertise. And that's been criticized ever after that Lack of medical expertise would have such grave consequences uh, when we had a pandemic. I don't think anybody could imagine that. There has been a number of reviews of the system and, and everybody has said the same thing. You need to ramp up your medical expertise in these homes. And if you don't do that, you're going to have problems. And that should to be true. There is a number of things to that. I mean, one is that the personnel is not very well trained, very many of them. They work on an hourly basis, which is very bad in the Swedish context because it means if you stay home because you're feeling slightly ill for a day, you lose your pay. If you have a permanent position, you get your compensation for that. So people could have been going in, workers who were not well. Yeah, and I don't want to point finger to the workers because they really did the best they could, but they were poorly trained. They didn't have the possibility to really stay home when they should be able to stay home. Testing of them in the beginning was not very available. Uh, so there was a number of reasons why the COVID-19 fairly easily came into these homes. And once it was there, it was proven to be very, very difficult to control. And it's not only UK and Sweden who knows that by now. I think basically every country in the world has the same experience. So I think what we really need to do is to, to have a better system for, for taking care of our elderly, not least medically wise. And then unfortunately, that's fallen off the radar for a bit in Sweden because there are so many other political things that are discussed these days. And it's very unfortunate. Just so Planet Normal listeners know, can you just Tell us what your restrictions were. I think very early in March, you banned gatherings of 500 and over. What were the other things? What happened in restaurants and places like that? What we in general try to do is to figure out what are the places that are really dangerous. And we knew from experience from other countries that big gatherings were dangerous. Uh, that had been shown over and over again. For restaurants, we also knew that these are uh, tricky places. And we had big talks with the restaurant owners and we came up with a solution. Okay, we said, you need to restrict the number of people you let in. You're only allowed to serve at tables. You're only allowed to serve to groups that come there as groups already. So they don't meet new people when they go to restaurants. And that uh, thinks worked reasonably well because when we followed up afterwards, we see very few cases in restaurants. We also gave very strong advice to elderly people to try to avoid meeting other people inside, especially outside. We said reasonably okay. Uh, we had very strong messages about trying to work from home as much as possible. And that, I think, was probably one of the key things in the Swedish strategy. About 50% of the Swedish workforce worked from home. And that can be done in a country with the infrastructure and so on we have in place. And we also told people to stay home if you're feeling slightly ill in the morning. People actually did stay home. So we managed to get the number of people meeting each other down quite a lot because they didn't go to work. And we also managed to get most of the sick people to stay home, even if they were not tested. And so I think on the whole, we managed to get this social interaction to, to stop to a great extent. 
In the UK, I'll come on to what happened there, but Professor Carl Hennigan, he's Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford. The key word is evidence-based. And our Planet Normal friend, Professor Shanetra Gupta, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford, both very distinguished figures. They kind of became blacklisted. Their views, which I'm sure you would agree, were views which were the dominant orthodoxy of your trade, were suddenly silenced in not just in the UK, but across the Western world. Was that shocking to you? Yeah, surprising, because normally health is an area where evidence is important. In Sweden, it's even written into the law that healthcare should be managed and driven by evidence-based medicine, and that it was so quickly left. I've never been seen it during my decades of work in this area before. Was it groupthink? The path you took was lonely. Was it easier to take the other path? Yeah, it is. And I think it also, the precautionary principle is often cited. To me, it's cited in the wrong way. Because to me, the precautionary principle means that you should not act unless you have good evidence that what you do does more good than bad. But here, the precautionary principle was that do as much as you possibly can as quickly as possible, which is normally against the precautionary principle. A number of things like that were were used as arguments in a bit surprising way many times. This podcast will be released on the 23rd of March. That's exactly three years to the day that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, abandoned the mitigation strategy and issued a stay-at-home order to the British people. One of the things that triggered that announcement was a report by Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, and that got into the public And it said that letting the COVID virus spread freely would result in 500,000 deaths. Now, apparently that scenario was based on data from Wuhan and Italy. How how erratic or how bad do you think that modelling was and what effect did modelling have? I mean, we had worked with modelling quite a lot in our agency before, and I think we we knew very much about both the strength and and the weaknesses of modelling. It can be a very nice tool if you use it the right way, but if you model with data that so far is is not of very high reliability, the results can be very, very tricky, and you need to be very cautious about the results you get out of it. Because if you put in numbers into models that you use for other things, and you don't know that those numbers are fairly much correct, you can arrive at very, very strange results sometimes. To me, it looks like the whole strategy, our strategy, was inherently flawed and very pessimistic. I mean, Andres, was science showing what needed to be done or was science being used to support a narrative that had already been agreed? I I don't know, but of course... Science can be used in many different ways. And, and you, you need to realize that you need to weigh together different sources of science and then you can maybe arrive at something that's reasonably, hopefully, true. But to rely very much on, on just one study, one model and so on is, is usually quite dangerous. And you, you need to sort of really double check and see to get more people doing the same thing or, or slightly different things before you can feel reasonably safe about that science is showing you what might happen. One criticism of lockdown was that it was okay for what they called the laptop classes, the professional middle class people. But of course, it was the ordinary, often poorer working people who had to go into the stores, make the deliveries to make that comfortable lockdown possible for more privileged people. Do you take that as a sort of criticism of lockdown? Yeah. And it was also to a certain extent a criticism of the advice we gave, that some of the advice we gave was, not, of course, not possible for everybody to follow out of economic or social or other circumstances. And I think that's a lesson we need to learn from, from this pandemic, that we have groups in our society that are very vulnerable, that are very much already normally big problems in, in public health. And we really need to be better to reach them and try to understand them and, and try to give them the tools they need to protect themselves in a much better way than we did during this pandemic. So in September, Andres, you were part of a video a conference with 10 Downing Street and the Prime Minister was in that, Boris Johnson was in that conference, Rishi Sunak, a Chancellor of the Exchequer, who we have since learned was questioning lockdown a lot, but not getting very far. And also present were 
Professor Shanetra Gupta and Professor Carl Hennigan. I understand that that meeting was to talk about whether they should do a short so-called circuit breaker lockdown for the UK. What were your thoughts about that? Were you interested that you'd been asked? And did you think that you were being asked in good faith as a sort of person who had not taken the lockdown course to give them good advice? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit surprised to be invited. It's not something that happens every day to get invited like that. I soon found out my role was very much to 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 give the background of the Swedish experience, not really to give advice, but just to give the kind of scenario or different scenario that uh, that we have been using in Sweden. And my impression was that they were quite open. They they tried to listen to the two different sides and and see what what arguments there were for yes. both sides. What do you think about this circuit breaker lockdown? I mean, it sounds quite sort of technical, but. What's the impact of that? I mean, presumably for every week you lock down, there will be then costs, not just to the economy, but costs in health and education, won't there? Yeah, that's part of it. There are different things to this. One, we learned quite soon that it's quite easy to start have different kind of restrictions, but it's very difficult to stop having them. Why? Mainly because it's difficult to communicate, I think, because normally having a short lockdown doesn't really, you don't see it really because it takes much longer for it to have effect. So it's very difficult to communicate, okay, why did we have a lockdown two weeks ago? We had the same amount of cases right now and we're going to stop having a lockdown. I think that's uh, communication wise, it's very, very difficult to make that believable and trustworthy. But for a while then there was this idea about this is the way we should handle the pandemic. We should have very strict measures and then take the hammer away and then sort of let it slowly build up again and then bam, again. But that never worked. I don't think it worked anywhere, partly because it was so difficult to instate and then reinstate these kind of measures because people stopped believing in it. In the UK, what happened, which which bears out what you're saying, is that the public became very pro the lockdowns mm-hmm. and felt obviously felt more protected. Yeah. When people say, Alison, look, the polls showed huge support for this. My reaction is that, but no one ever made the counter argument to them, no. which you made in Sweden, which is, if we do this, then these may be some of the pretty bad consequences. So I felt we, the public was made afraid, and then they were trapped in being afraid. And Rishi Sunak, for example, now the Prime Minister, had to have an initiative called eat out to help out, Mm. to basically bribe the public (laughs) to go back into restaurants. That eat out to help out was to try and make people less afraid and give them the confidence. And to some extent, Andres, I'm going to tell you, a lot of people in the UK have not recovered their confidence. Mm. So would you say that that's a kind of consequence of not telling them your economy is going to be very bad. You know, your children are going to have... We have in the UK one million children waiting for mental health mm. support. Would you have predicted that when you were weighing up the alternatives? I mean, in the discussion, especially among the school closings, uh, mental health of children was very high because we know that if they're not able to go to school, uh, mental health will deteriorate. I mean, that's a known fact. There's lots of studies and evidence around that. So, of course, that was important. And we also know that this is one of the major problems with public health in Sweden these days is the mental health among our young. And we didn't really want to hurt that any more than we already did. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me feel quite emotional, I have to say, because I know children who have suffered. um, But isn't it the case that the course you were taking... It's easier for the other side to point to the deaths than it is to point to things that haven't happened yet. Isn't that the case? Yeah, and that's always the problem with with many measures because the measures, they help. They, of course, will be very happy. I mean, these different um, programs we have for finding diseases early on is a classic example of that. I mean, you you find a few people and you treat them and they're, of course, very happy. But those people, you have a false positive and go and worry for a long time and so on. They are never seen. Uh, So I think that's something you really ethically need to weigh uh, all the time, that uh, the silent majority that's going to, in different ways, suffer from what you're doing 
is never heard very much. It's only the, the extreme yeah. cases that yes. benefit from it that you hear or, or don't benefit from it. So when Sweden did experience an unexpectedly large second wave, more restrictions were then introduced, some masks, mandatory vaccination certificates for certain measures. Was that the politicians taking more of the control from your public health agency? No, not really. I mean, we had a good dialogue all the time. It's just, as you said, the second wave became bigger and it really affected our healthcare system a lot more than we we had hoped for because we were really hoping since the second wave in Sweden came quite late, we thought, okay, it's going to come, but maybe not as bad as it's been in many other countries. And then we really felt, okay, we need to do more. And that's when we went to government and we got uh, some of these other measures into place uh, that were more restrictive. We never had mandatory masks. We had recommendations to use masks in, in public transport for a short period of time. But I read the take-up was very low. Yeah. So people by then had got used to being treated as adults. Yeah. It was only 15% who chose to wear masks. Yeah. I mean, we also gave the choice, telling them, okay, if you, for some reason, have high risk or something like that, or you feel vulnerable, you really need to take this crowded train and not wait for the next one, which we really thought was a better choice to make. Can I just ask, Andrew, were hospitals ever closed to non-COVID patients? Because that's caused a big crisis in the United Kingdom. No, no. Uh, hospitals were always open to the ones that needed care. Advice was given to people saying that if you can wait, please wait. So, of course, we really, I don't think we studied very carefully yet, but there are indications that people, to a certain extent, maybe didn't come enough. We can see that cardiac patients and so on should probably have come to control But that was also very much because these people felt vulnerable, which they were, and they didn't want to expose themselves. It's a difficult balance to find because you can tell people, please go to hospital if you need that. But if they still feel that hospital might be a dangerous place, maybe they feel the need a little bit less than they should. You worked in Sweden during the swine flu epidemic, and then you had this quite controversial mass vaccination programme Did you feel, looking back, that that might have been a bit of an overreaction? And were there any lessons from that swine flu epidemic that you brought forward into the COVID pandemic? I think we learned a number of things. We learned how important it is with communication. We learned how extremely important it is. We have a very strict and very thorough follow-up of the effects of vaccines while we we do vaccinate. We cannot completely rely on the studies that are done before because for some rare events like the narcolepsy and doing this, you don't see them in those studies. So you really need to have a robust system in place. And, and we did have a much better system in place now because we actually had a, a national vaccine register, which we didn't have before. And that was one of the background that we actually had that in place was the narcolepsy. So we saw, for example, that Astra vaccine was probably not such a good idea if you had alternative because there was some rare but very serious side effects of that and we we found that out early on using the register we had in place and that we had um, the capacity and the resources in place to study that early on very quickly so we shouldn't miss things like that. Given the speed with which the COVID vaccines were developed was there a case for not vaccinating the parts of the population that were at little or almost no risk in terms of children and adolescents? Yeah, we ended up, there is no real case for vaccinating young children. And we didn't do that in Sweden because the benefits for that group were so marginal. And even if the side effects were extremely rare, we couldn't really be 100% sure that they didn't exist. So yes. we did not vaccinate the small children except the ones with pre-existing conditions that made them at a high risk. And of course, they got vaccinated. Now we can see that we have a lot of excess deaths in the UK, a really large number. And Sweden is at the absolute bottom of the chart now for excess deaths. How do you account for that? What's going on there? Excess death is, is a tricky measurement, like all measurements. And you should be quite careful about overstating what it actually tells you about how, how well we did doing. I believe that one thing we did that had a great effect on that was that we vaccinated very much and we did vaccinate extremely focused on the partial population with the highest risk. 
early on. We used basically all the vaccine we got in the beginning to go into the elderly homes and vaccinate those places. So I think we, we did everything we could to get the maximum effect out of our vaccination programs. And I think that has had an effect on the excess mortality over time. What do you say, obviously the defenders of lockdown will say, oh yes, but Sweden isn't a good comparison, much smaller population, more widely spread and so on. Do you think that's correct? I mean, you'd- No, it's not correct. I mean, the Swedish population live very much focus together. I mean, it's in this area yes. in the centre, around areas. Stockholm that yes. basically all of the people live. Yes. We have a, a big population of people coming from other countries, which has proven in many countries to be a vulnerable part of the population. And we have quite a lot of people living in crowded circumstances and so on. So I wouldn't say that Sweden is an outlier. The real outliers in this is, of course, Finland and Norway, where the population is really widespread and uh, they are much less crowded. And they did well. They did very well, especially during the first wave. They did very well. Something looking forward, something that I'm quite nervous about, is there are plans to change the sort of international health regulations. The World Health Organization seems to be pushing through amendments to these international health regulations. And it seems that if they are signed and agreed, this legal document could severely restrict in a future pandemic the independent movement of a country like Sweden. Have I got the right idea? And if so, are you concerned about that? Uh, We don't know yet. Uh, I think historically countries have been very concerned about having their own possibilities to make their own choices. I would be quite surprised if we gave away to that. I think there is a lot of room for improved collaboration between countries. I mean, that was severely damaged during this time. And I think that's what we are now trying to repair, that we can be much better at keeping each other informed, making joint evaluations of different things, sharing data much quicker than we did and so on. So I think there is a number of things that can be removed. And I really hope, and what I hear, that's also what's going to be focused on. I think it's going to be very difficult to see that any supranational organization can sort of order you to have a lockdown. I have a hard time seeing that happening. We need to really adapt our measures to how we live. And of course, that also in Sweden, we can't have the same measures up in the, in the north where people live maybe one person in per square kilometers compared to what we have in the center of Stockholm. Of course, you need to handle the pandemic in different ways in different parts of the country. Do you feel happy with how you did your job and that the verdict of history will be that Sweden defied the consensus and was vindicated? I don't really like to be called vindicated. And I mean, this is why. Not, why don't you like to be because called? this is not a competition. No. This is about public health. It's yes. about trying to do your best to keep your population as healthy as they possibly can during a health crisis. And, uh, and that's what it's all about. And I think what we learn is that we, we need to be a lot more flexible about that. You need to have different measures in different kind of places and you need to have different measures at different times during a pandemic and so on. And we can't really go down and think that we have one solution that's going to solve the whole problem. I said on Planet Normal that I was coming to meet you in Sweden and just got amazing influx of messages. Lynn says, please tell Anders he was a beacon of hope for millions of people in the UK who wished our government had followed his sensible science-based approach. Louise says, please thank Mr Tegnell. He gave people like me hope. I even bought a T-shirt with his face on it and I still wear it with pride. And Jack says, Anders, you're a legend. Anders Tegnell, I agree with that. You're a legend. Thank you so much for coming on Planet Normal. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Alison, we've had some big beasts on the podcast, haven't we, in the last almost three years of Planet Normal. I think that's right up there. A really, really important interview. And chapeau to you for inviting Anders Tegnell onto the rocket of right thinking. I think he's quite deceptively trekking to the snowy wastes of Sweden. I did have a sense of pilgrimage, Liam. I can't quite describe the feeling. I wanted to be in the room with him because he had done this most extraordinary thing. I mean, this is a man, I think, who will go down in history as setting himself against the herd and the groupthink, which possessed the governments of every other Western country apart from Sweden. I'm sure listeners will have heard he's quite terse, he's mild-mannered, he will smile, but only occasionally, but he has immense 
moral authority. And I think we have to be very, very grateful to Anders Tegnell because without him, all the governments could argue that lockdown hadn't been so bad. They had no choice. He and his team, he's the Sweden state epidemiologist, his public health team, they proved there was a choice. And the choice was to have voluntary measures, which were proved incredibly effective. And Sweden has not suffered the absolute economic catastrophe that the UK has and doesn't have the astonishing child mental health problems. And much fewer excess deaths. Honestly, Liam. It's at the foot of the global league table, i.e. at the top of the global league table for excess deaths. Absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. Because they didn't impose the collateral damage on their economy, on their health system that we did. And you will hear, won't you, the sweet reason to invite him onto the rocket of right thinking, this sanctuary of sweet reason. When I was sitting in that little recording studio with him in Ling Shopping University, I felt I was there in the sanctuary of sweet reason with the patron saint of sweet reason. And I think there's a few important points to come out of the interview, Liam. I didn't know that Sweden has a law which says that public health measures absolutely have to be evidence-based. And not only that, as he said, this is a quote, a very clear division of labour between the agencies and the government. Can you imagine that happening here in the UK? Our politicians were all over it. We know that from WhatsApp. Yes, we do. And doesn't that show you that Anders Tegnell and the team were able to keep saying, but that's not what's worked in the past. We're not going to do that. The data don't support it. And as you say, he is the anti-Matt Hancock, isn't he? Matt Hancock, who was congratulating himself that being in charge of this crisis could put his international profile into a completely different league. Unbelievable contrast. I say to Anders Tegnell, Taksamuche. You didn't know I spoke Swedish, did you? It is interesting that you've now got people like Karl Lauterbach. As you said, Alison, Germany's lockdown chief, admitting that closing schools was a mistake, admitting that some of the restrictions were idiotic. We need this kind of plain speaking from the people who imposed lockdown on us. We need to be reassured that they've learnt lessons and they won't make such ridiculous mistakes again. Oh, you like this. I was very pleased with this formulation, co-pilot. I think that the entire Western world fell prey to Stockholm syndrome while Stockholm stayed sane. That sums it up, doesn't it, really? No doubt you nicked that from a reader's email, but anyway. <laughs> that actually came out of my own weary head while I was in Sweden. By the way, I did visit the Nobel Prize Museum in Stockholm and the lovely young guide who was showing us around, she pointed out that many of the scientists who were on display there who had won this astonishing honour had been mavericks. They hadn't been believed. They hadn't been trusted. And a little part of me does wonder whether Anders Tegnell will be awarded the Nobel for medicine. Because that would be the most astounding vindication, wouldn't it? I mean, can you imagine that? And that would be two fingers up to everyone from Sweden, which did the thing was called a pariah state by the New York Times, a pariah state. And who did better, America or little, trustworthy, reliable, rational, sane Sweden and the great Anders Tegnell? Now on to our listener emails, your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love reading your thoughts. By the way, we were ticked off by one listener this week for getting I and me wrong. Oh, <laughs> crikey. Liam and I and Liam and me. I said to our lovely listener, I'm, I'm very sorry, I may be an English graduate, but I went to a really rubbish comprehensive school. I always panic when I get to a sentence where I have to use I or me. But anyway, here is Alex. The lockdown files have revealed several truths. 
One, the conduct of ministers was at times cult-like or frenzied and lacked any sense of proportion or ethical integrity. Two, Matt Hancock should be personally culpable for inflicting crimes against humanity on the British people, but also that he was very far from alone. And three, even now, almost all Tory MPs, almost the entire opposition and the vast, vast majority of the British media is willfully blind to determined to suppress the authoritarian shambles and downright wickedness that they abetted or cheered on. Shame on anyone and everyone who shrugs at these revelations and still clings to support of lockdown. This is from Christina. And because this is a lockdown special, all our emails are about lockdown. Christina says, my mother-in-law, who was one of my dearest friends for over 30 years, died of cancer during lockdown and we were unable to see her. Only one of her three sons was allowed at her bedside when she died. It broke our hearts. And here's Rob on what we should do with Matt Hancock in light of the lockdown file revelations. Solitary confinement for the little weasel, says Rob. (laughs) Like the treatment of my 89-year-old father who was isolated in a care facility and my 92-year-old mother couldn't see him for two weeks. Then within another two weeks, he had died. Utterly disgraceful, Hancock. Penelope says, I spent a lot of time in hospital during the second lockdown, most of which I had to pay for as the NHS threw cancer patients like me under the proverbial bus. I can tell you that the private facilities were almost completely empty. Some were shuttered as the NHS commandeered them and then did nothing with them. I spent time in two NHS general hospitals and saw only empty wards, masses of staff with not much to do, a few patients and operating theatres and radiography facilities empty and unused. I said it then and I'll say it again, a total scandal. Fran says, I lost my mother during all of this SH1T. She is still alive, but the last vestiges of her were lost to dementia while she was locked away from her family to keep her safe. Safe from a gentle death with pneumonia, the old man's friend. I will never, ever forgive or forget. Thank you and please keep up the good work. And Andy says, my daughters missed their 18th and 21st birthdays because of pointless lockdown. Hancock should swing for this. I note that the BBC aren't even covering the lockdown files so brilliantly covered in the Telegraph, says it. This is from Lee. Why, oh, why was all, in quotes, science abandoned? All public discussions about risk versus benefits, and I include the Commons, newspapers and the BBC, etc. It simply didn't happen. We were infantilised and led by the nose, says Lee. Only a few individuals can hold their heads high. Thank you, Alison, Liam, George... Lord Sumption, Professor Shanetra Gupta and a few others. The situation was very complex and we deserved a more intelligent, nuanced discussion. Please let the inquiry present findings very soon with adult recommendations for similar future events. This is a lovely one from Jenny. I felt like crying when I read Alison's article on the lockdown files as it brought it all back to me. It was such a terrible time for us and so divisive for families and friends. My experiences were very similar to those you have brought to our attention, so I don't want to make this a long email, but just to say how very much we appreciate you and all you are doing to get to the truth. Maybe with your help we will have planet normal for our children. Please keep podcasting and know that you are invaluable in our crazy world. And finally, Nikki in Bampshire. Dear Alison and Liam, I think everyone would agree that we have never before been so ill-served by our politicians. Maybe the solution lies in taking a lead from ancient Greece, where every year Athenian citizens nominated politicians they felt threatened their democracy. Voting, or Ostraca, decided which one had performed worst. He was then exiled or ostracised (laughs) for 10 years as a punishment. That outcome today for poor performance would focus the attention of our current politicians and remind them who they work for. Thank you for the wonderful Planet Normal. Keep up the good work. And on that bombshell, Alison, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. The first of our two lockdown specials marking the third anniversary of lockdown. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week, it's my turn. And I have to say... Nikki from Bampshire, because I never knew where the word ostracism came from. (laughs) (laughs) I like learning things. (laughs) You do, don't you? So, Nikki, send us an email. Put Mugwinner in the subject heading of the email with your postal address, and we will send you a coveted Planet Normal mug. 
And thank you again to the absolute, the massed legions of the orthogonal to the orthodoxy and, of course, to Professor Shinetra Gupta, who gave us that marvellous phrase. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It don't half lift the spirits of me and the co-pilot or the co-pilot and I. We, don't, we, just, we just don't know. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week and part two of our Planet Normal lockdown anniversary special. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 